Section three of the Door of the Unreal by Gerald Biss. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Brighton Road, Part three. Document contributed by Burgess Climping of Climping Manor near Handcross in the county of Sussex. I must frankly confess to having been obsessed from the very first by the Balsiver affair on the Brighton Road, and it is perhaps only natural as it happened so near to the boundaries of my own estate, but I never dreamt what a part I should find myself called upon to play in the elucidation and clearing up of the whole ghastly affair. Within three miles of my own home, and less than half the distance from the family dower house, lay the scene of the two mysterious disappearances which had convulsed the whole country. And great has been the sensation over the Balsiver business, it was child's play compared with that which followed the affair of Tony Bullingdon and Miss Yvette St. Clair. I had naturally worked with the police and rendered what personal assistance I could in the former case, all to no result. The local part of the business had proved itself utterly hopeless and entirely barren of any clue long before the police would admit it, even with the utmost reservation to the public. If the earth had opened and swallowed the Balsavers, like Korah, Dathan, and Abraham, their disappearance could not have been more complete. My name is Burgess Climping, and Lincoln Osgood, my dearest and closest friend, who at the immediate request of myself and all the others concerned, has consented to act as chronicler and collator of the events surrounding and explaining this extraordinary mystery, certainly the strangest of modern times in its denouement and all that lay behind it, has in my opinion in his preliminary covering memorandum said sufficient about me personally for the purposes of this record. I live at Climping Manor, which has been in the possession of my family in direct and unbroken succession since the fourteenth century, and I have often felt it my duty to marry as the last of the line for this reason alone, but hitherto I have never had any real inclination, or rather the real inclination. I am not particularly wealthy, but the estate, which runs to some six thousand acres, renders me very comfortable and well-to-do as country squires go, and affords excellent shooting, which is my particular hobby. I farm nearly a thousand acres of it myself in a rather practical way, and that keeps me pretty busy, and my time fairly occupied. My constant companion is my only sister, Anne, a beautiful girl of just upon twenty-one, who keeps house for me and looks after my guests and myself in the most delightfully capable yet unobtrusive fashion. And it is this, perhaps, which has kept me from ever contemplating marriage seriously, save as an abstract or academic duty to the house of Climping. Our mother died when Anne was a child of three, and I a boy of thirteen, and my father five years later. So it will easily be understood that she has meant very much to me all her life, and has always been my special care. Now that she has grown up, and, as I have already said, is a very lovely girl, tall, active, and wonderfully fair, a rare thing in these days, with remarkable gray eyes with long black lashes and arched black brow, and a magnificent lithe figure. I could write lots about Anne's beauty, and good points as a pal, but this is hardly the place to let myself go. I feel that it will not be long before love claims her, and then, perhaps, marriage will assume a different personal perspective in my eyes. This, at any rate, is how I felt on Monday, April 2nd, but much has happened since then which will come out in the evolution of this story, and I must frankly admit that certain vague ideas had already been chasing themselves through my mind 
more or less inconsequently, without taking any very definite shape. But I am wandering from my brief and anticipating unduly. Klimping Manor is a commodious, if unpretentious, early Georgian house of mellow red brick and large windows, paneled throughout, and above everything, comfortable. The head of the family had, in 1742, deserted the original old manor house, a small but perfect piece of Elizabethan architecture, which lay buried in a hollow a mile and a half away, and built a more spacious and healthy family mansion upon the highest point of the estate, with terraced gardens sloping down to the woods, and there is no question that he did well by subsequent generations of Klimpings. The old manor house has since been used as the dower house, as it is now generally called, but there having been no family claimant to its use since the death of my grandmother four years ago, it is led at present to an eminent German scientist, Professor Lysurgis Wolf, who took an extraordinary fancy to it last summer when he struck it by chance, trespassing, I may say, with all a foreigner's disregard of our insular sanctities, upon an entomological expedition while staying in Brighton. I did not like the idea of letting it, I must frankly admit, and it was not the rent that attracted me so much as the fact that it had been standing empty, apart from the occupation of the kitchen gardens by one of the underkeepers and his wife as caretakers, for close on four years. It was getting into a somewhat damp and musty condition, as it must be admitted it is a bit dank, down in the hollow amongst the trees. However, as there appeared no likelihood of its being required again for family purposes for many years to come, and as the professor was importunate and produced unimpeachable references, in the end I consented to let it to him furnished for a year. It was a bit of a wrench sentimentally, as from a boy I have always been particularly attached to this beautiful little Tudor manor in miniature, a perfect gem in its own way from an architectural point of view, as the old home of the Klimping family, the actual original house on its site having disappeared centuries before, save for a part of an old stone barn attached to the dower house. Thus it came to pass that Professor Wolf took up his residence in the dower house last autumn. He was a very striking-looking man of sixty, with shaggy gray hair and beard, a pair of remarkably piercing black eyes under long, straight, slanting brows, which met in a point over his nose, and distinctly hidden ears set low and far back on his head, half hidden by his long hair. His mouth under the straggling, unkempt mustache was full and red-lipped, and he had a very fine set of even white teeth, especially considering his age. His hands were long and pointed, projecting curiously far at the third finger, and noticeably hairy, with red almond-shaped curving nails. He was tall and rather lean with a slight stoop, and walked with a peculiar long swinging stride, altogether a strange and rather bizarre personality in the surroundings of sleepy Sussex, especially as in winter he always wore a Russian cap of grey fur and a heavy grey fur coat. However, he proved an interesting and intellectual companion, widely travelled and widely read, and though I did not see very much of him, from time to time we interchanged visits and met by chance about the place. Three times during the winter he and his daughter dined with us. He lived a very simple sort of life with his books, his writing, and his collection of strange insects, alone save for his daughter Dorothy, and one middle-aged serving-woman, Anna Brunoff by name, a rather sinister person with grey glinting eyes who had been Dorothy's nurse, and was, whatever her appearance, 
obviously an industrious and capable servant. Dorothy, well, it is difficult to give my first impressions of her, except that she was as unlike the professor as anyone could well be, and without the least trace of the Teutonic type. But that is another story, and again I must not let my pen outrun my story. Suffice to say, she struck me as beautiful, beautiful in a way totally different from my Anne, but possessing a rare beauty that grows on one, her hair brown and waving, with a strong red light in it, and a wonderfully clear complexion, small delicate features, and two great solemn blue eyes that looked on life as though they had not fathomed it. Considerably shorter than Anne, but beautifully built, a fact that her rather rough and ready clothes could not altogether conceal, and the daintiest hands and feet I ever saw in any woman. The matter of first impressions is always difficult, especially when the question of dress enters into them, and Anne, in due course, helped to change, or at least to modify that to the revelation of a beauty of form, which was hidden under the dowdiness of garments dictated by an elderly German professor, absorbed in other things, and a distinctly autocratic nurse of the type of Anna Brunolf, who had no taste in such matters, and had been accustomed more or less to rule Dorothy almost from the cradle in the persistent fashion it is hard for a girl to shake off even at two and twenty. A great friendship sprang up between Anne and Dorothy almost from the first, though neither the professor nor Anna seemed to encourage any particular intimacy. And the result was that Dorothy was far more in our house off and on than Anne, who could not bear the professor, ever was at the dower house. With the distinctly repellent personality of Anna Brunolf in a funny brown fur cape which she habitually wore, ever appearing dour and uncompromising at the massive oaken front door studded with old nails, one of the original and most picturesque features of the old Tudor house, which was habitually kept shut instead of open in English country house fashion. No one else in the neighborhood took the trouble to cultivate my new tenants particularly, nor were they encouraged to do so, the professor giving it to be understood that he was deeply immersed in a great work on entomology, the magnum opus of his scientific career, which was to make his name famous not only throughout the world, but to posterity for all time. On reading over what I have written, I am afraid that I have, after all, let my pen run away with me in these preliminaries. But as a matter of fact, I really ask no pardon, as they are all more or less relevant to the story in hand, and will help those interested to grasp more clearly local surroundings and those connected with and instrumental in unraveling the mystery, which for a while looked like proving a blind alley. Nevertheless, it is high time that I got back to Monday, April 2nd, the point in the action of the story from which I am detailed to start my personal contribution. I was awakened that morning at a quarter to seven by Jevons, my faithful butler and valet, who had practically grown up with me on the estate, and in many ways was almost a foster brother, and I saw at once from his pale, scared face that there was something wrong. What's up, Jevons? I asked before he could speak, sitting up in bed. More trouble on the Brighton Road, sir, he answered, speaking with suppressed excitement. Another couple have disappeared out of their motor and vanished, just like the Bolsovers. Hedges has just been up from the lodge, as he thought you would wish to be informed as soon as possible. Quite right, I replied, jumping straight out of bed. Tell him to wait, and put out my old shooting suit. I'll have my bath when I get back. Don't tell Miss Anne until she is dressed, and ask her not to wait breakfast. Make me a sandwich while Wilson brings round the two-seater. I was hardly five minutes slipping on my clothes and ate my precautionary breakfast in the car 
as we hurried along with Hedges, who was my head keeper, in the dicky seat behind. It was a beastly raw morning, and a cold, uncompromising drizzle had set in, which turned into heavy, persistent rain as the morning went on, removing any possible traces which might have been left to aid the police. We were soon on the spot, and found it fairly alive with police summoned from all parts, including detectives from Scotland Yard, who had arrived by car. There was also already quite a gathering of local sightseers standing open-mouthed, and several reporters had got wind of things and turned up by car or bicycle. But the police had formed a cordon round the immediate vicinity to keep everyone back. However, recognizing me, they let the car pass, and I approached a little group standing round Chief Inspector Mutton. He saluted me and told me everything in a few words, adding in a low voice for my private benefit, It's an exact repetition of the Balsar business, except for the burning of the car, sir, and looks equally hopeless. Then he introduced me to Fitzroy Manders, who I knew by name as a rising barrister who had been up at Balliol two or three years before my time, and he in turn introduced me to Verjoyce and Wellingham, who between them told me their story firsthand and gave me details of the fruitless searching which had already taken place. Then we strolled across to the car, which was nothing but a charred and twisted heap of scrap iron. This rain put the lid on it, said Manders with a slight shiver, and I noticed that he and the two younger men looked white and starved with cold. You had better come up to my place with me and get a hot path and some breakfast, if Mutton doesn't think we can do any good, I said, learning that Gravel had gone to Handcross an hour before to drive the women folk back to London. They readily assented, and I sent them on ahead in the Daimler with Wilson and a message to Anne, while I returned to Mutton, who was arranging for a fresh search with a CID man from Scotland Yard. I placed Hedges and Reese, the underkeeper, at their disposal, and threw myself into it heart and soul. But at the end of an hour and a half, we foregathered again, with nothing to report. It was raining hard by then, so I left them for a while and drove myself back in the two-seater to the house, where I found the three others bathed and breakfasted, and looking little the worse for their night out, though the two youngsters had a curious strained look on their faces. Anne was busy entertaining them, and had heard the whole weird story in every detail and it spoke well for her nerve that she had not turned a hair. What news, they all asked at once. I shook my head. None, I answered. It looks pretty hopeless, especially with the rain setting in heavily for the day. We'll go back after I have changed and breakfasted. I went up to my dressing room, leaving them to smoke, and got off my wet clothes, bathed and shaved, and was soon down again, eating a hearty breakfast with a real country appetite which no sensations could put off. Soon after eleven we drove back to the spot again, and spent a fruitless morning in the soaking rain. A large crowd had collected, and was kept back with the utmost difficulty by the reinforced police, and there seemed to be importunate reporters at every turn, but no news. Mutt was disgruntled and rather morose. It's a bad job, he said disconsolately, and we shall have the whole press and the country in its wake down upon the incompetence of the police force. Major Bleckensop from the yard is down, He's the second in command at headquarters, and he frankly does not see what more can be done. I was introduced to Major Blenkinsop, and had a short talk with him, for which I was glad, as it put me into direct touch with him, which proved immensely useful later on, as will be seen. But he would not come back with us to lunch, as he was anxious to get back to town. So we returned to the house shortly after one, or back again shortly after two, only to find things just as they were, 
and the rain falling more heavily than ever. At four o'clock, realizing the futility of hanging about any longer, Manders and the two youngsters decided to return to town in the Daimler, and I went back home a little later, leaving instructions for word to be sent to me if anything turned up unexpectedly. But of this there seemed little hope. I was thoroughly tired by the excitement of the day and the long hanging about, which I often think takes more out of one than any amount of honest exercise and really doing something, and so was Anne. But we were both mightily cheered up in the middle of dinner by a telegram from Lincoln Osgood to say that he had arrived in London and would be with us the following afternoon. No news could have been more welcome at any time, but it was more than ever so at such a juncture, when I felt the need of a friend to talk things over with and I knew what a profound interest he would take in the extraordinary mystery, though I did not then imagine that it would be he who would hold the key to it, and put his finger with bold, unerring instinct upon the unthinkable clue which was baffling the cleverest detective brains in the whole country. After dinner, I smoked a large, soothing cigar in front of the blazing wood fire in the hall, glad to be cozy and indoors, with the outside element shut out. And naturally, we talked over the strange events of the day, and the mysterious fate of Tony Bullingdon and Miss Yvette St. Clair, whom we had seen in the review at the castle only a month previously, little dreaming what the morrow was going to bring forth to link us both up so much more closely with the weird affair. Anyhow, the Brighton Road will be well patrolled tonight, I said, as I kissed Anne goodnight soon after ten, when we both felt quite ready for bed, and sensation or no sensation, I must confess to having dropped off to sleep almost at once, and slept soundly all night. End of section three.